Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dan. Today, I am excited to be joined by Mohammed Azam. Mohammed, thank you so much for making the time to come on. Thank you for having me, Leo. You're otherwise known on Twitter as Azam Sharp, but I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself before we get started. Sure. I started programming like a while back with ASP.NET and .NET and all this stuff, but in for iOS world, I joined in in 2010 when my colleague introduced me to Mac and iPhone and all those cool things with Objective-C. And from there on, I started learning Objective-C with uh, you know all those memory management, manual memory management stuff with 3.2 or 3. something at that time. And uh, fast forward to today, I have been teaching online on Udemy as well as on YouTube, but my main job is to be a coding bootcamp instructor for a company called Digital Crafts, where I teach web development, which includes JavaScript, Node, Express, React, Redux, Postgres, and all these kind of things. So that's what I'm doing uh, these days. Awesome. I'm so glad to have you on. Today, we're going to be talking about one particular thing that you've been, uh, you have a new Udemy course, I believe, uh, on server-driven UI. You want to explain that it, what that is before we get started and jumping into how it works? Sure, sure. So the main concept behind server-driven UI is that instead of only the data coming from the server, which you can just display on your iPhone app, you are also be getting data plus the components that you want to display on the UI. So you may want to say that, oh, uh, the server is going to send a carousel control or a carousel framework or anything like that, like a JSON response, which includes carousel. So you want to display a carousel and the server can decide that, oh, I want to display a rating control, which will go from one to five or five to 10 or whatever. So the idea, the main idea is the server is not only in charge of the data that your app will display, but also the components, the views, the actual small widgets that you want to display in your application. So that's the basic gist of it. So if I have this, if I'm understanding this correctly, like, is there, I guess, maybe a certain use case where this might be a good fit as opposed to others? Sure, sure. So this is a very good question because this is not for all the different apps that you're going to design. So this is only for very, very particular kind of apps that require a dynamic interface that needs to be changed quickly without going through the trouble of app review and all those things. It's also very, very beneficial for those apps that are available on many different platforms. So if you are a very big company, and we can take example of Uber and Airbnb and Spotify, and they have apps on iOS, Android, and web, and they want to update the apps, all of them at the same exact time instantly, then they can use this approach without publishing one version on iOS app store, one version on Android, and one deployment for web. They can simply change the structure the server is returning, and all of the clients, iOS, Android, and web will immediately be updated. So it's very small set of apps that will need this kind of feature. I'm not saying that your app may not be the one because maybe some parts of your app will also need this feature. So it doesn't have to be 100%, meaning your app doesn't have to be 100% server-driven. Maybe parts of the app are server-driven and parts are just normal app. 
And it seemed like based on some of your content and Airbnb was the big article I saw in Medium where they had really uh, uh, proposed this idea. It seems to me like a good situation is where you have like tons of dynamic content that you kind of have like, for instance, Airbnb is a great example. We'll use that. But you might have a place you want to rent out and you might want to add a widget for certain rentals like that, that might make sense to where you code the widget, the sense, the, the, the guts of it in your Kotlin and HTML or, or node or Swift and Swift. And then you have the server side, just give you, Hey, we need, we need this particular widget here. And then it, it knows how to render that widget out on each individual operating system. So that that's it, like where you have a large amount of content and where you want to like kind of customize, have like a template and then each individual OS designs it or, or platform, I should say, kind of renders that out correctly based on when it gets back from the server. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah. It's just one thing to keep in mind is that all the widgets or components which you're trying to render they should already be part of the binary that you distributed to the app store because all that's basically what you're simply changing is that you're simply saying the server is simply saying that oh on this particular page now i don't want to display the rating control i want to display a drop down list control but that drop down list and the rating control must already be part of the binary that you have deployed to the app store so you're basically changing the ordering or you're changing the color or some features so those things you can do on the remote side, meaning the server. What got you interested in this particular topic? So I've always been a server or a backend developer with my days in ASP.NET and backend development with all that stuff. Uh, so and these days also I do Node Development Express and uh, you know all of that uh, Vapor also with the server side Swift. So I was always interested in these uh, cases, and if you can believe it, we actually implemented this. In back in 2005 and 2006, but not using JSON, uh, we did it in a very weird way, and it didn't really work out because we were actually storing XML. XML. We were storing XML, yeah, and I think okay. for part of it, we were storing in. Uh, uh, there were some pages that were just pure HTML, so they were in databases, and it was very hard to obviously edit when you have HTML, <laughs> pure HTML yeah, in there. Right. But yeah, we did it in yeah. XML. Hey folks, I want to let you know about the sponsor of today's episode, AppFigures. AppFigures has the tools you need to optimize for more organic growth of your app in the App Store. And they have a special event this Thursday for you to check out. In this event, Ariel, CEO and former guest of this podcast, will be talking about how screenshots could be hurting your downloads in the App Store. So here's what I want you to do. Submit your app as soon as you can so that Ariel can take a look at it this Thursday in the live stream. I'll have a link to the Google Doc form where you can submit your app. And then Ariel will take a look at it and analyze how screenshots are driving your users to download or not download your app or games. It's not the only thing, but it's probably one of the most important things you could look at. Ariel will be doing this on real apps. So if you really want to know how your screenshots could affect the downloads in the app store, you'll definitely want to check that out. But please submit your app ahead of time so that Ariel has time to look at it and analyze it for the live stream. They have some great content. I highly recommend you check it out. Obviously, we've had Ariel on the show to talk about competitor intelligence. That was a really great episode. But a series this week in apps and the great blog posts that they put out really give you an analysis of all the different trends and things going on with the different app stores. And if you have that new app idea, you should definitely check out some of the tools that AppFigures has. It's going to help you learn from your competitors and analyze different trends 
for your app as well as your competitor's app. So if you have that great app idea, I highly recommend going to appfigures.com and signing up. Use the code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off. So go right now, sign up, use the promo code, and give AppFigures a try and see how it can help you grow your app and understand the different trends and competitors of your different app ideas and how they can help you out. Thank you so much to AppFigures for sponsoring today's episode. So one of the big use cases, it seems like, like you said, is the cross-platform ability to it. And I, I agree completely. Like we did an episode on cross-platform development with, with Rob Kerr a couple of years ago. And like, to me, this is the ideal, like instead of React necessarily or or whatever other uh, flutter you might be using, this might be like the best fit for a cross-platform situation, just based on what I've seen so far. Were there Are there any other good use cases besides that that you can think of? I think the other use cases for this, apart from being able to change the interface remotely and able to deploy instantly on different platforms, it definitely helps with uh, A-B testing because all you need to do is to simply view a different version or change the URL. And now the client, meaning your iOS, Android, or web apps, they will be getting a completely different look and feel. So you can test it out without deploying or doing those kind of weird things that you do with A-B testing, like deploying two different versions and all those kind of if-def checks and all that stuff. So without doing all of that, you can simply change the version URL and now two different clients or two clients will have two different view of the same thing. And you can test it out which one works much better. What are some cons that you can think of with going into like what would you say to someone who's like i'm really want to do this well there's some things you should think about before you jump into doing server-driven ui yeah so one of the things that is uh, very important with server-driven ui is that your different teams have to work very very closely together like if you have a server team which is completely different from your android team ios team and web team now all of those teams should have team meetings together because they have to come up with some sort of a template that the server will be returning, and that has to be approved by the server team, iOS, Android, and web team, because all of them will be using the same exact template. So that has to be constructed, and that is one of the things that will take a lot of time to construct this generic kind of a page template. So let's. I want to deep dive into that a little bit more. Like, What are some other things that teams should be aware of when they're managing something like this? So you, you said kind of having... Having the same template language, right? Yeah. Your JSON has to be a specific way and the server has to spit it out and the Android and the web and the iOS folks both all have to be able to parse that correctly. Is there anything else you can think of? I think from from my, when, when I was working with, and obviously I was only working with the iOS apps, my main concern was the decoding strategies that I will have to use to decode those things. Because there were a lot of cases where the template that was being returned from the server, and I was controlling the template also, it was, you can't really decode it to like a string and any, because any is like, you can't decode that part because any can be anything. Right. So yeah, for that, I have to create like a completely like a different type, like a JSON type or any decodable type, which will decode it to some other type. And that was kind of like a little bit of a hard part to implement those custom decoding strategies. So those have to be done. 
The other thing I was thinking of was like doing an enum with an associated type. So like mm-hmm. you have like widget A is is something, and then yeah, you will you will one way or another you're going to have to do some some work with manually setting that up. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. I mean, what other architecting tips do you have for something like this? I think the first uh, thing to understand is that when you are or if you're planning to go with this approach. You don't have to take the deep dive into just, okay, we're just going to do everything, you know, the server-side Swift. You can completely think about what portions of your application are supposed to be server-side. So one of the examples that I always use is that whenever you're displaying some data, like especially the read-only data, maybe you're displaying, uh, you know, some pet store with some pet adoption pictures uh, and those kind of things with advertisement on the top or some ratings and everything. The read-only portion is a very good example of that can be done easily with server-side because it's just kind of like read-only. You can move up and down. But whenever you go into taking input and processing that input, especially with the SIF UI with bindables and binding and passing state values, then it becomes close to very, I mean, impossible to do those kind of things because it's, it's basically you're just rendering those controls that your server is returning you and you just don't know which control will take what. Like some controls may be just presentation controls while other controls take a binding expression and that's just not possible to do. So mostly I have used it for read-only views where you're just dynamically changing the, the view order. And that's one of the things I was thinking about too is like there's a granularity to this, right? Like you can have, you can really like code this to the T as far as how, how much control you give to the server. And then like you could also just, like you said, kind of yeah. take a step, take a step by step approach to, to migrating it over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, another example that I implemented in the course also is uh, the list example, a very simple list, but each cell of the list can be very different. And that is controlled by the server. So one cell can be just a text row, meaning it just displays the text information. But the other cell of the same list can be the one with the image and the rating and some other stuff. So you can go to that small granular level uh, if you want to. But the more you go there, it becomes more you know, complicated because now the server needs to return different types. And you need to make sure that you conform to what server is returning. And what your HTML client can do, your web browser can do, what Android can do. Yeah. So, yeah. Like you said, you kind of want to take take a really basic approach. Like it's, I like the idea of doing the read-only stuff first Mm -hmm. and just hammering that out. If you were going to do this today, would you choose UIKit? Would you choose SwiftUI? What are like the benefits of each of like what are the benefits or, or drawbacks of taking each approach in iOS development? I think you can use either UI Kit or Swift UI, but if I had to do it, I would choose Swift UI because the declarative nature of Swift UI just makes it much more easier to create those very small one thing to do components. Uh, so that's why I would always use or I would use pretty much like Swift UI for these kind of things, although it can be done with anything. And if you're using Swift UI, you will get one step closer for web apps if you're using React because React, Swift UI, kind of like same. And if you're using Android or you're using Flutter for Android, then you're pretty much in the same gist of it because React, Flutter, and Swift UI, they're pretty much the same structure that they they work together. I mean, not work together, 
but the same thing, declarative nature. What's the composable? What's the it's composable? What's the thing in Kotlin for doing reactive development? I forgot what it's called. Composable UI or something. I think the jetpack. You know what I'm about? Jetpack. Maybe. Jetpack. Jetpack. Jetpack yeah. composed. So yes. jetpack composed. Yeah. They can you, you can use that, which is similar to you know Swift UI and all that stuff. So definitely, all of them will be declarative nature. I think another thing which I forgot to mention is the navigation. Because in Swift UI, navigation is kind of like one of those things that people don't like, that they have to put the navigation embed in the navigation somewhere. So using the server-driven UI, you can actually change or control the navigation from the server. So you can say that, oh, I don't want to go from, when I click a button, I don't want to go from A to B. Now I want to go to A to Z, this particular view, A to C. And you can do that. And you can even change the navigation type, meaning do I want to perform a push navigation or do I want to perform a modal navigation or a sheet navigation? So you can control, you have those uh, things you can control from the server, which is actually pretty cool. Have you, like, yeah, I was going to ask about that because that's one of the biggest drawbacks I've seen with people is like the lack of dynamic navigation in Swift UI. You haven't, you, you don't, you haven't seen a lot of friction as far as that's concerned using Swift UI and server-driven UI for that? For Swift UI in general and not talking about the server-driven UI, yes, the, you, as you said, there is no there is no correct way of doing like a, a navigation kind of thing. It's always kind of comes in the way because there is no central place like Flutter or React that you can put all the navigation part. There are a couple of different ways you can do it in Swift UI. If you just keep your components very much kind of like rudimentary or very basic, and it always gives the parent the control to where to go or where to perform the navigation. So you can do on those cases, but the amount of code you have to type kind of increases uh, tenfold whenever you have to do that. Now, with the server-driven UI, all the navigation, everything which we call actions are on the server, and they are translated to navigation links and all that stuff, which is already in Swift UI. So we are able to change that from the server. That makes sense. One of the things I saw in your YouTube course preview um, was the use of like type erasure, like and having to do any view. Was there a reason why you had to do that when it came to server-driven UI? Yeah, so I had to use any view because I didn't know what view is it going to, or which component, as we call it in server-driven language, which component or view is going to return. Because we had different kind of views, like rating view and a list view and a grid view and some other view. You can try to use View Builder if you want to, uh, but that approach didn't work out over there. Okay. Yeah, I know like when I've done stuff with Combine, I've always ended up having to do type erasure because if I start sticking with the actual type name, it's going to be a mess because of yeah. all the different like generics. Generic, yeah. So I could, I think I understand where you're coming from when it came to like SwiftUI and server-driven. It's like, yeah, you could... You could specify some view and do it that way, but now you have to like carry that type and it's a pain in the neck. So yeah, okay. I get where you're coming from. What are some gotchas when it came to server-driven UI as you were developing with it? I think one of the things which I didn't solve or I was not able to solve was the same thing that we mentioned, I mentioned with the binding part of it. Meaning if one of your views takes in a at binding expression, which changes the binding which will reflect the or trigger something in the parent. So there's no way, correct way to pass binding because it's literally uh, in the server-driven UI, it's 
just a loop running and it's just rendering all the components without passing anything to anyone. So that was one of the main things that I wasn't able to figure out. And the other part, which is very important, is versioning. What will happen if you add controls in your or you change your JSON or the server changes or sends you different JSON, but the client is also consuming it support it. it's not supported. So you have to think about those cases. Now there are many ways that you can solve that if the client and one of the best ways I think is the server will know what version the client is running. So the client will only request that URL and the server will only give the client those components or controls that are that are okay and accepted for that particular client. Like, do you, how do you set up a new component? Like, because you'd have to make sure everything's in sync with like the app store and deployment on the, the server. Like, how do you arrange that? Me- like, yeah. How do you arrange that mechanic? Yeah, if you are creating a new component, let's say I'm adding a new carousel component, then I will physically have to deploy the app to the app store. And once the client downloads uh, or updates to the new version, they will get that component and their version number will get updated from one to two or whatever. Okay. So that we know that, oh, this is this person on version two. So we should give this person all the components. That component. Okay. Yeah. Which will, which are supported. Hey folks, I wanted to let you know about Swift Remote Studio. I don't know about yourself, but I've been feeling pretty isolated the last two years working from home and not being able to find a common co-working space that I can join others. Well, if you're looking for something like that, then Swift Remote Studio might be the right fit for you. This virtual co-working space is focused on developers and designers in this space of iOS, Mac, and other Apple Swift development environments. You can get connected and get focused by meeting others in this community. We can help one another out, get motivated, and create new friendships, all working together swiftly. There's virtual co-working, silent co-working, community spaces, a job board, some member discounts as well, and community events that you'll want to take advantage of. With prices right now starting at $4, it's definitely something you want to sign up for as soon as you can before the pricing goes up as more people are joining every day. Also, you can get 15% off by using the code EMPOWER15. So if that sounds like too much, that will certainly help as well. So use the code EMPOWER15 to get 15% off any of the plans. And there's a variety of plans available to you. Swift Remote Studio is definitely a great opportunity, and I highly recommend that you check it out. Evan Stone, host of iOS Dev Break has really put a lot of work into this, and I think this is going to be a great way to collaborate with other folks who develop in this environment. So please, go ahead, use the code EMPOWER15 to get 15% off any of the variety of membership plans that are available through Swift Remote Studio, and join. Once you've joined, tag me, message me, and let me know. I'd love to see you there and collaborate with folks like me and Evan. Thank you so much to Swift Remote Studio for sponsoring today's episode. Okay. Like uh, the other thing I w- like I was thinking about this is like just like fail like safely. Like if they have a component that you don't support just don't show it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that was kind of my thought too is like cuz 
but yeah, because you have to make sure, like, okay, I deployed on the server quickly, hit the release button, like, or release, or release the version of the app before the component is like, yeah, right. Like, it, it's it's tricky yep. for sure. We kind of covered this, but like, were there gotchas on the server end that you you rec- you recognized when it was com- when it came to like supporting something for multiple platforms? From the server side, the, I think the main thing was uh, always been to design a very generic kind of a template. That was the main and the hardest part because it has to be approved by the iOS, Android web team, all the teams, the server team. And you have to come up with some sort of a URL that will, or some sort of a URL as well as some sort of a template that you will give to the client. Apart from that, and apart from the versioning issues, which can be solved on the server as well as on the client, the server kind of becomes kind of like the easy part to implement in this in these cases, since it's uh, well. I guess another question which came was if we are returning the UI, meaning which components you want to render, as well as the data associated with those components, should we make two calls or should we make a single call? So I ended up making one single call which will return you not only the components that you want to render, but the data associated with those components already filled out. Oh, yeah. Well, you almost it almost gets a little bit like what <laughs> what is the component and what is the data, right? Yeah. Like you're kind of like, what what's really the separation there as far as like, well, I guess the question that I was going to ask is like, how do you make sure when you design your app on each platform that it's still not designed in, too generic of a fashion, if you know what I mean. Like you kind of want your server-driven UI to be agnostic enough to where like whatever info it gives the client, if it's iOS, maybe in some cases you want a toggle in the web, maybe you want a checkbox. Like you don't like kind of being agnostic enough to where your design is still looking like it looks like it's supposed to, as opposed to being you know, way too generic to where, you know, you have one of those iPhone apps where you're like, okay, they, they, they built this and they built this in React Native without really thinking through like how it's supposed to look on an iPhone and what are the best practices, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's, uh, as you said, I mean, that's the, one of the best things that I found about server-driven UI is that server is only returning you the JSON and the client, meaning the React app or Flutter app or Android app, they're the ones building, consuming the JSON and then deciding that, oh, I need to create a rating control. Oh, I'll create it the way that I want to create it. And so those components will be native to the web platform and Android platform, whatever they're in, uh, implementing. Yeah, and that's something you probably want to circle your design team into if you have one. Like, oh, hey, by the way, we have this component for rating. Like, how should it look on Android? How should it look on iOS? How should it look on the browser? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. What other errors might you run into besides versioning issues that you should probably think about? I think one of the most common is like what happens if uh, in no Wi-Fi situation or the server is not responding correctly, meaning it's just down or being updated. And in those quick cases, I mean, the fallback is only like you can display, you know, kind of like the some sort of a local template, which is saying that a local view, which is saying that, well, unable to connect to Wi-Fi or things like that because there's nothing you can do. Unless your app is caching that particular JSON or for some reason, like the actual template, then you can revert back to that. But obviously it will be displaying some old information and may not be relevant in in the case that you are implementing the app. You obviously don't want to display 
stale stocks or cryptocurrencies information or some sort of, uh, you know, these kind of time sensitive information. Right, right. Or at least have like last updated out, right? Something that indicates what made you want to. So I, I watched the really good course um, that people should definitely check out. And one of the things is you developed it using uh, Node and Express. What made you to make that decision? And what were some interesting things that you found as you were developing using that for your server-driven UI? Yeah, great question. I mean, you can use any server platform that you want. You can use Vapor or uh, you know Ruby on Rails, Django, whatever you want. I chose Node and Express because that's what I teach every day to my students. I'm pretty familiar with that. And I also chose Node and Express because it's a very mature framework as compared to, uh, let's say, Vapor. I mean, Vapor is great, but I would choose Node and Express over Vapor at this point because Vapor is still continuously changing, which is a good thing. But if you're implementing or you're creating your data, I mean, the backend, you want something a little bit more, like a little bit, you know, uh, not, uh, not that fast-changing thing. But you can use Vapor if you want. Uh, I simply chose uh, Node and Express because I teach it every single day. I'm familiar with it. It's very easy to deploy. Actually, you can write the whole Node and Express app on glitch.com, which is already deployed, basically. So that's that's a good thing. And one of the things which you may have already seen in the course is that I started with creating a very simple app using Node and Express, but then I quickly switched to just a local JSON file so that I can do iterations, multiple iterations much faster instead of consuming, you know, or doing those uh, HTTP calls. One of the things I've been thinking about is, uh, so I redesigned the Bright Digit website, by the way, pretty recently. People should definitely check it out. And I designed it, uh, I wrote it in Publish, Mm -hmm. uh, Sindel's uh, server, uh, or a static site generator. And one of the things I've been thinking about is like, what if I build, what if I have it, I put just a JSON file and then I build an app that consumes that and it's a bright digit app, right? So like you can almost convert it from a website to an app just using using this, but without like the dynamic web yeah. calls because it's just a JSON file. So yeah, that's that's been in the back of my head as something to play around with uh, as well. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about decoding. Was there anything else you wanted to mention? Like, sounds like you did more of the, like a kind of a string any type uh, and I mentioned associated enums. Anything else that you ran into when it, when it came to decoding your JSON? No, I mean, that was a little bit of a hard part because when you're returning from the server, you keys will be in string. We already know that, or most of the cases, but the value can be anything. So uh, we I could have used your technique with the associative types. I use like a creating a uh, any decodable uh, type, a struct or something. and uh, to have to do like a manual decoding process, which was kind of painful, but it worked out in the end just fine uh, because it was able to decode anything you give it. It will decode it to a dictionary. And then from dictionary, I can convert it to any type I want. What are some ways that you would recommend approaching testing with this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, both on the server side and on on your individual client side? Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the client side, it is recommended that you, instead of starting with the server, you start with a JSON, local JSON file, so that you can come up with a nice template or generic template for your result that your JSON service is going to send you. So instead of implementing the service, just 
come up with a template, see if it works. It will be obviously much faster because it's a local file as compared to HTTP request to a server. And it you will go through those iterations much more quicker. Now, when you're comfortable with that, the first version of your JSON structure or whatever you're going to return, then you can move on to the server part. And from the server part, I think the only thing you have to, apart from sending the right data and the right content, like the components and the structure of the components, you have to just keep sure, make sure that uh, the URL that you're using that makes sense uh, for your server. And also, you have to make sure that the versioning is correct and you're sending the correct components and the correct response for the client that is requesting. So if a client is version number one, don't send that client components that are only for version number five, because that's not going to work. It's not going to show anything. Right, right. And then just make sure your app doesn't crash if it gets a component that it doesn't oh, recognize. Oh, yeah, yeah def- definitely. That's the last thing you want to deal with. I remember a while ago, I don't know if you remember this. I, I don't know which app it was, but somebody had put out a library that you can like design the whole entire app mm-hmm. on yep. the server. Uh, and they, I think they essentially had it like take down by, by Apple uh, in the app store. And what I remembered about that was like, they they had it down to where like the whole entire app like could be designed on the server and like all all the app like the actual app code did was just like render it out and i think like a big difference between this is like the app doesn't really change like it doesn't it can't be just changed on the server it's more or less like the components are already predefined on the app and as long as you're giving apple kind of like the consistent experience you're pretty much okay. Is there any other like app store gotchas you might want to worry about? No, you, uh, going you, I this think approach? you nailed it. You're absolutely right. Uh, because we are not really changing any logic or anything of the app. The logic is already built into the binary, which is already on the app store. The only thing we're changing is we might be saying, oh, instead of three rating starts, we might want to see five rating starts. Or we might be changing the ordering of the view or the navigation part. But anything the navigation is going to, the views and the ordering that already exist in the app binary, which is already deployed and approved by Apple. So you should not have any problems with sending this to the App Store. I mean, our App Store review process should not have any restrictions on these kind of things. I mean, we have uh, Spotify, Uber, Airbnb, and Flickcard, and so many different companies all doing that, the same thing. And as long, like, I don't know if you have an app where you have like a login you need to set up for your app store reviewer, just make sure like when they log in, they have like basically the same experience your typical customer would have. And I think you're good to go as far as app store review is concerned. Before we close out, a couple of questions I wanted to ask you, what are you working on right now? So I'm working on a couple of things. I'm trying to finish out my book of uh, how you can become a developer by attending coding boot camps. It's for and it's written from the angle of my five years experience as teaching at coding boot camps and graduating 250 plus students. But it's also for self-taught developers who can read this book and not attend the boot camp, but just read the book. And they will get a lot of tips and tricks of, uh, you know, uh, how to micro task or how to, you know, design different things. Uh, it's not a coding book per se, but it's more of uh, how what goes kind of like behind the coding part of it. Do you have a link we could post in the show notes? I'm still writing, so I'm still not done. Yeah. 
Okay. So that's, no preview link so, or anything like that. Yeah, I don't have a preview okay. link. And the other thing that I'm working on, which hopefully should be done before WWDC, hopefully, is a new, brand new course on Udemy for Reality Kid and Augmented Reality, using Reality Kid. So that is something that I'm working on slowly. So hopefully that will be done before WWDC, but uh, we'll see. I have a few ideas of why I've not done Reality Kit or AR Kit and why I'm intimidated by it. Like to me, it's like, A, I have to write all this three, like I have to build out these models and then I have to like, you got machine learning stuff involved. Like it seems really intimidating when it comes to those, those frameworks. What, what do you recommend like for somebody who wants to get started on those, uh, what, what they should, how they should approach it, I guess. So it, I know that some people think that they have, they have to have like a, be a math genius or something. Uh, it doesn't, I mean, you don't have to know a lot of math to begin with reality or augmented reality. And for, as you said about models, so I don't know how to create any 3D models. Uh, that's a completely different skill, but I am good in finding different models either from Sketchfab or TurboSquid or even Apple models, which are available on Apple website. Um, I do have already have courses on ARKit, but that's obviously ARKit a little bit old now. I think it's like three, four years old and those I created. But uh, Reality Kit, if you want to start beginning, I mean, start to learn about Reality Kit, I would definitely recommend the you know books from Ray Wenderlich website to introduce the Reality Kit or some just general YouTube videos on Reality Kit and obviously the WWDC, which will introduce Reality Kit part of it. But uh, if you're thinking that it's uh, or too much math involved, I have to be a calculus and all that stuff. It's not that. It's just instead of two axes now, obviously there are three X, Y, and Z, and you just play around with those things. So it's uh, it's kind of fun, yeah, uh, but not much math involved for most cases. All right, all right. You're encouraging. You're sure. encouraging. Yep. <laughs> so before we close out, I want to chat a bit about WWDC. What we'll start off. What do you expect is going to happen this year, as far as what the, maybe the big thing is going to be? I usually don't, I mean, it's, I know that it's going to be, uh, my expectation and I think my wishes for WWDC are pretty much the same, which is, uh, Swift UI improvements, especially on the part of map, uh, MapKit, because MapKit is quite limited. Testing, a little bit more testing in infrastructure for Swift UI, even though you can test Swift UI views, but maybe we want it uh, to better support a little bit, you know, more. Uh, I know that there have been talks about some core data replacement frameworks online, but I don't think there's going to build out, but something related to that called Swift Data or something. And one wish that I had for several years, which uh, is kind of like a, going on for at least five, six years, is some sort of a server-side Swift framework from Apple so that other people who are not backend developers, uh, they get a chance to experience a backend and to create, you know, services and server-side pages or server-side APIs. Because once Apple push out something, it, you know, it gets more traction. What do you think, like, I mean, Vapor is probably the most mature of the ones out there. What would be the benefit to Apple to doing, like, a different one, I guess, since Vapor is already out there, but also, like, they're not really, like, even though they try to, they're not really a server-side company, you know what I mean? Other than, like, CloudKit. So, like, what, how how could you see that scenario play out, I guess? I think it will definitely help other people to use the server-side framework from Apple because once Apple pushes out something like they pushed out Combine and now everyone is jumping switch from RxSwift to Combine and to functional programming and now they're 
introducing async and await and all those things that they introduce. So everyone is using that. Uh, but I think it will definitely help people get off the paid platforms or third-party platforms, which may or may not exist in the future. Uh, like Oh, so you're thinking parts. they'd host something. Yeah, yeah. So once they oh, okay, okay. develop it, I mean, the the framework also, like a Swift Air or something, so that they can yeah. write Swift. I like that name. So they can write a server-side app, well, server-side backend in Swift using Apple Framework, and then they can deploy it on Apple or somewhere else if they want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost like if they could make it easier. Like, I mean, they don't even have to write their own framework. They could just be like, this supports every Swift-based framework. Here's the here's a library for deploying it on our servers or AWS and be good to go. And like, they don't even have to like write their own. Like, because there's such a server-side Swift community out there already. It's like, here's a library for deploying whatever server-side Swift thing you have and you're good to go. And that would be fantastic. Yeah, I agree. That would, that would be really cool. I mean, the thing to me that always is like, they've really tried to increase their revenue on services. And to me, like if you're going to do services, it's not just about having major league baseball, but like Amazon's makes a ton of its money off of like AWS. Like that's where their money is. And if you want to do services, like that's where the money's at is like hosting a server like a more advanced cloud kit or or deploying server-side swift apps but yeah that would be that'd be fantastic yeah yeah so that's my small wish list and obviously improvements for xcode so it can run like multiple previews or xcode previews for multiple devices at the same time so that will be definitely helpful yeah 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 totally anything else you wanted to mention before we close out i think we covered uh Pretty much a, a lot of stuff, and hopefully it will give a little bit of guidance and ideas to people if they are interested in server-driven uh, UI. And uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Mohammed, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Really glad to have you on. Where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter, very active on Twitter, so you can follow me at Azam Sharp. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, people can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. Please take some time to post a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you're listening. If you're watching this on YouTube, like and subscribe, please. And I look forward to talking to you again. Have a great day. Bye.